The Sermon on the Mount is probably, it's not probably, it, I'd say it is, the most famous sermon, the most well-known sermon that Jesus ever preached. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a very simple goal with the sermon. He wants you, and He wants me, to understand life in the kingdom of God. To understand life in the kingdom of God. To understand what life is like when it's lived under the rule of God. When it's lived under the reign of God. So the questions that Jesus is addressing throughout the sermon goes something like this. What is it that God really values? What is it that God deeply, deeply values? What is it like to know God? What is it like to really know Him, to come into a relationship with Him in a way that He's a friend? Um, if I follow Jesus, if I follow you as you know, the people are watching Jesus preach, if I follow this man, where will He lead me? Where will He lead me? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. We are still at the beginning. So if this is your first time with us this morning, you are not too late. You're not getting a, a late start. I'm always going to say that, of course. We are so glad that you're here. You're welcome to be here. You are not too late. I'm going to read now the passage that's in front of you. I'm going to read a part of it, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11-16. through 16. Paul Goebel, the other pastor that teaches on Tuesday mornings, over the last two weeks, he has looked in depth. He's carefully sort of moved us along in depth at verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read sort of the end part this morning, but I've I got to tell you, it, if you just want to concentrate on verses 13 through 16, this is going to be a disappointing morning for you. I really want to take the whole thing in view. I'm sad that we won't do more with 13 through 16, but I feel the burden of helping you understand what Jesus is doing in the entire first part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's really important. Let me read verses 11 through 16 for you this morning, then we'll pray together. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we ask for, for grace as we walk through this passage together. We pray that you would meet us here, that we might better understand ourselves, but most importantly, that we may be, better understand who you are and what you are doing in the life and work of your Son, how your Spirit moves us in the direction of life with him. We pray that, O oh God, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the life of the world. In Christ's name, amen. 
Well, I want to begin with a story this morning just to kind of wake you up. Um, it's one that I think I've told here before, not positive. I'm kind of sort of counting on your bad memory, not because of your age, but because it's early in the morning, okay? So here's how the story goes. About six years ago, our oldest son, John Randall, he was two years old at the time. He was playing his favorite game in the world at the time. It was Candyland, okay? On this occasion, he was playing with his grandmother, Dee Dee. My wife and I were out of town, away on vacation. And you probably remember how Candyland works. There is no strategy at all, right? You draw a card, and then you move forward, right? So it's a luck of the draw game. Sometimes you draw a card, and you get to move a long way forward. Other times, however... You draw a card, and you have to move a long way backward. John Randall was in the lead against his grandmother. He was making the final turn, coming down the home stretch, when he drew the gumdrop card. Now, if you've ever played Candyland before, you know that this is a disaster. It's a complete disaster. It meant that he had to go all the way back to the beginning of the board. So he picked up the card. He studied it. He frowned. And without missing a beat, he said a curse word in front of his grandmother. <laughs> and I'm not going to repeat here. Two years old. Uh, there was no strangeness in his tone. It's as if this particular word was a part of his common vocabulary. He even used it in the right context. I mean, no one wants to see the gumdrop card when you're coming around the final turn at Candyland, right? <laughs> so Dee Dee stops the game. She stops the game and in shock looks at her firstborn, her dearly beloved grandson, right, in horror, and says, John Raynell, what did you just say? And as if her hearing was poor, <laughs> he repeated the word clearly, making sure he enunciated this time just to alleviate any confusion. John Randall, did he said, you can't use that word, that's a bad word, to which he replied, I really like that word. I want to use that word. Mommy says it sometimes. <laughs> I thought I was going down for this one, but it's mommy that's the bad influence. Now, I have permission from my wife to tell that story. Um, if you know her, it's actually even funnier because it's so out of character for her. And I tell you that story sort of just to wake you up. It's a funny story, but also because it really was around that time that a disruptive reality begin to sink in for me. If you've had kids, you've felt this as well. This little guy is watching everything that I do. He is watching everything that I do. For better or for worse, whether I am paying attention or not, he is learning the world through me. That's a serious wake-up call. It's a serious wake-up call, right? And it overturned an old pattern of thinking that I'd lived with my whole life. That, that was this, that what I did at home was either trivial, it didn't really matter, or it was private. It didn't really affect anyone else except me. Not anymore. <laughs> you know, my life was not only being watched, it was being caught. It was being imitated by someone that I deeply loved. It was a it was a disruptive thought for me. It changed the way that I thought about 
life at home. Maybe you've had moments like that in your own life. Think about a time in your own life when something happened, the light uh, came on for you, the scales fell from your eyes, and whatever happened, you began at that moment to evaluate your life from a different perspective. Your old ways of thinking, of evaluating, of processing were overturned. They were irreversibly disrupted. The gospel writers describe Jesus as an extremely disruptive person. He is an extremely disruptive person. That may be an understatement. Here is a man, they all say, who when he comes onto the scene, or when he comes into your life, he overturns your old ways of evaluating things. He irreversibly disrupts how you do life, who you are. I'm going to paint it for you like this. There is a scene that Matthew will record later in chapter 21. And in that scene, Jesus walks into the outer courts of the temple. Maybe you remember this. It's towards the very end of his life. He walks into the outer courts of the temple and everyone is just doing their thing. They're minding, literally, they are minding their own businesses. They are selling temple wares. Pigeons. And they're selling grain and oil. All of these things for the temple sacrifices. They are, they are keeping the temple economy going. And Jesus walks into the scene. He enters the temple courts, and what does he do next? Remember what he does? He overturns everything. He goes to all the tables, and he overturns, it says he overturns the seats even, of those who are selling the pigeons. He disrupts everything. He disrupts the normal business of temple life so that no one can just go back to the work under the pretense that nothing has happened here. In a short vignette, that is fundamentally who Jesus is. Jesus is a man who enters into the sacred places of our hearts and our lives. And he overturns the old ways of doing business there. And to follow this man means to trust that the disruption that he brings into your life is good and holy and right. It is not easy. It is not painless. But it is good, it is holy, and it is right. This morning, the Sermon on the Mount is about God overturning the way that we think about the world. This morning, I want to show you two specific ways that Jesus begins to do this at the very beginning of His sermon. Okay, two specific ways, and why we should be thankful for it. All right, number one, how does Jesus overturn us? Well, I want you to notice in your handout that verses 1 through 16 are printed. We only read 11 through 16, because that's the primary focus for us this morning. But I really, like I said earlier, I want to give you an overview of all that he's doing here. So look with me first at verse 3. I know we've, we're retreading here, but let's look at it again for a moment. Here's how Jesus begins his sermon. This is really significant. He says this, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's easy to miss how radical these first words are. So let's pause for just a moment and consider the fact that Jesus begins his sermon with a benediction. Jesus begins his sermon with a benediction. He begins a sermon on life with God with a benediction. So what is a benediction? A benediction is a pronouncement of favor. It is a pronouncement of favor. It is the declaration from a higher to a lower of high regard. It's a declaration of approval, of esteem. The most famous benediction in the Bible is the one that comes from the Old Testament probably. It's the one that God commands His high priest Aaron to speak to the people of Israel. So God says, speak these words, these benedicting words, these blessing words over the people of Israel. And here's how the words go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Do you hear the the tone there? That benediction is a declaration of the pleasure that God takes in the people of Israel. It is the shining of His face. It It is Aaron telling the people that God looks at you and He smiles upon you. And Jesus begins His sermon without pronouncement. Now, why is that strange? Well, you probably know this. It's strange because benedictions mostly occur when? At the end of something, right? Benedictions mostly occur, not at, they're not normally the first words, they are the final words. So, for example, if you've ever been to a church like ours, or if you've ever been to a wedding ceremony, you'll see a line in the order of worship labeled benediction, and it comes at the very end of the service or ceremony. If you read the Bible, you'll notice that fathers bless their children, and kings benedict their kingdoms, mostly when they're on their deathbeds, at the very end of their lives. Now, why is that? Why were benedictions reserved for the end and not the beginning? Why? Because approval is only given once all the facts are in. The declaration of approval is given once the facts are in. Once the truth of the vows have been spoken. Once the fullness of a life comes into view, then the blessing. For the worthy receivers. But not here. Here Jesus says before anything else, before anything else you hear me say, before anything else you do, you need to know something. You have the approval of God. God himself is not waiting to see how your life will turn out before he declares his favor upon you. In fact, not only do you get the blessing here at the beginning, but you get the blessing, Jesus says, in your emptiness. Do you see that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is to say, God takes pleasure in those not who come to Him with their hands full, but 
who come to Him instead with their hands empty, who have nothing to offer Him in return. Jesus is saying, in in light of all the truth about you, in light of all of your shame, God says to you, I love you. Yours is. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. That is the first way that Jesus disrupts our lives. He overturns the belief that we have to be worthy of God. That we have to be worthy of heaven. That we have to be worthy of blessing in order for God to love us. And instead, he says, look, it is grace alone that makes you worthy. You can only receive, you can only rest in the love of God as a gift. Come and know the blessing of God, not because your hands are full, but because they are, in fact, empty. And some of you have heard this over and over and over again in your lives. You've been in churches who have taught you that, and so we grow numb to the fact that this is extremely, extremely disruptive. How disruptive was it? We'll look at the life of Paul in the New Testament. Totally changed his life, if you don't know his story. One story that you do know about how disruptive this is is uh, the, the story of the prodigal son, right? You probably have heard that story before, even if you haven't been around the Bible long. Read it again sometime. In the parable, the story of the prodigal son, you'll notice that where both sons go astray, the moment that both sons go astray, because both of them do, the moment that happens is when they look at the father and say to the father, you owe me something. Give me the blessing that you owe me. And you'll notice it happens with the younger son at the beginning of the story when he looks at the father and says, look, I I want you to give me the freedom that you owe me to live my life in any way that I choose. So the father gives him the freedom and he gives him all the means he needs to support it. And what does the son do? He chases his desires. He chases his freedom until he has nothing left but his own misery. Father, you owe me. You owe me. It happens with the older son at the end of the story, right? At the very end of the story, the older son thinks that the father owes him a higher return on his faithfulness. A higher return on his faithfulness. He can't even walk into a party celebrating the return of his younger brother. His life is ruined because his father has disrupted the only law he thinks that is true in the universe, and that's this law. You reap what you sow. The father has come and disrupted by grace the only law that the older brother ever knew. You reap what you sow. Different brothers, different reasons, same result. When a son looks at his father in this story and says, you owe me, he is forfeiting his sonship. It is only when the younger son returns empty and says, I deserve nothing. I've got nothing. It's only when that happens that the younger son begins to taste heaven for the first time. He begins to taste heaven for the first time. Grace, grace totally overturns the normal business of how we think life should go. It overturns the way that we think about God. Grace overturns the way that we process our own shame and our own sense of worthiness. Grace completely overturns how we relate to other people. If you don't believe me, Jesus, later in the sermon, is about to say something that's never been uttered in history, and that's that you should love your enemies. 
totally overturns the way that we even process how we relate to other people. If you follow Jesus, he will turn your life upside down with the message of grace. That's number one. Disruption number one. Number two, look at me at verse 10. So I'm just pointing out this one. Verses 3 and 10, okay? Verses 3 and 10 form what is known as an inclusio. An inclusio, okay? An inclusio is a literary term for bracketing. It means that a section belongs together. And I know I just, if you weren't asleep, now I'll just put you to sleep, right? I talked about grammar. All right. It, it brackets a section together. Now, how do we see the bracketing here? Well, notice that verse 3 and 10, what do they have in common? You see that? They have the exact same promises attached to them. So verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same promise, same verb tense. All the other promises are in the future. It's bracketing. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, these are the bookends. They're the bookends of the Beatitudes. That is, the benedictions, the blessings that open and close. They are the blessings that open and close what Jesus wants us to know. Another way of saying it is this. Verses 3 and 10 are the major landmarks for your journey with God. They are the bookends. They are the major markers for a journey with God. What do we learn from verses 3 and 10 about what that journey feels like for us? Well, we just saw in verse 3. We learn in verse 3 that the journey is by grace alone, that God blesses us not because we are full, but because we are empty. You never get past that. That is the welcome of life in the kingdom. It's also the air you breathe in the kingdom of God. Grace alone. Grace alone. Not because you are worthy, but because grace has been given to you at the beginning. Grace alone. Now verse 10. Look with me there. Verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what do you think Jesus is saying there? Why is he telling us that? Well, think about it. They've just heard God blesses me, blesses me, blesses me, blesses me, blesses me. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And now he's saying that the blessing, the favor that God gives you is not to get you ahead in the world. The blessing of God is not, in fact, to get you ahead in the world. In fact, just the opposite will happen. Instead, you will suffer. The blessing of God will bring suffering into your life because it will make you markedly different from the world. You will not fit in. <laughs> the world will be hostile to you even as you journey through it with the favor of God resting upon you. So the question is then, how do those bookends relate to one another? What is Jesus, how do the bookends relate to one another? Well, if verse 3 is Jesus coming into our life and overturning the belief that we have to be worthy in order to experience the love of God. Verse 10 is Jesus coming into your heart, into your life, and He is overturning the belief that comfort and ease is proof that God loves you. Um, don't miss what's going on. These are two gigantic landmarks in your journey with God. Gigantic. One is the promise of grace, but the other is the promise of suffering. Gigantic landmarks 
and what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Grace and suffering. And Jesus elaborates in verses 11 and 12 on this particular kind of suffering. He says, look, others will revile you. Others will persecute you. Others will utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. It won't be because of you. Look, you can't... Now, if you do something stupid, that's not Jesus' fault, right? If, I mean, if you're, if you're um, tacky or, or uh, not compassionate, that's not Jesus' fault. But, but he will take the blame for the times when you speak up and act in his name and, and you are reviled for it. They did it just to you as they do the prophets before you. And I, know, I don't know that you're thinking this, but this is what I think when I read that. Okay, I think to myself, I have never suffered for being a Christian. I have never really suffered for being a Christian. And I thought, you know what, I think that's probably true in terms of violence. But have you ever felt alienated? Have you ever felt rejected? or undermined for being a Christian? Have you ever lost influence for it? Have you ever been pushed to the margins or diminished or ignored because of your faith? Now, if the answer is still no, then try this one on. Have you ever been just afraid to speak up? You ever been afraid to speak up? You ever felt the fear or awkwardness of sensing that the time was right for you to speak up, to go public? The spirit, your spirit was nudging you to do so, and yet you cowered. You didn't do it. It happened to all of us, right? You didn't do it. Why not? What's the, it's just words. What is the fear here? The fear is this. We know that all of those outcomes are on the table for us. We know that all of those outcomes are real possibilities, that if we speak up, if we go public, then we really might lose influence. We might be rejected. We might be alienated. Here's the deal. We might lose our place in the world. Have you ever felt that fear? Have you ever felt the fear of losing your place in the world? You have to feel that in order to appreciate what Jesus is telling you in verses 13 through 16. Okay? Verses 13 through 16, the verses about being salt and light, are not primarily verses about all the, the, the wonderful things that salt does that it flavors or preserves or kills bacteria or whatever else, or 12 different things. Those verses are not primarily strategies for how to become light in a dark world. Verses 13 through 16 are promises. Look at them. They are promises. And more specifically, they are promises that only make sense for those who have felt the weight of being reviled and marginalized and persecuted for the sake of Jesus. They are promises that make sense for those who, who have felt the weight and sadness of losing their place in the world, of not fitting in because their discipleship fundamentally has made them different. And so listen to the promises again. 
You are the salt of the earth. You are, not you will be, you are. In your, in your alienation, you are, and you're suffering the light of the world. See, we often think the most important words here are the words salt and light. I'm just not so sure. I think the most important words here are the words world and earth. <laughs> because what Jesus is doing is he is promising that in your difference, in your alienation, in your love for him, you are deeply impacting the world even though you are losing your place in it. God is using your character He is using your suffering, not just for your own sake, not just for the sake of your family and your friends whom you are close to. He is using it for the sake and the scope of the entire entire world. The whole earth benefits when you are faithful. When you are faithful. Now, I want to make one last point, and then we'll get into our groups and let you talk about it. Really briefly. Why should we be glad about this? Jesus comes to overturn the normal course of things through grace and through loss. Why should we be cheering this? Listen to me. There is one other place in the Bible when um, God gives a blessing at the beginning instead of the end. When the benediction becomes at the beginning instead of at the end of things. And that place is at our birth as a human race. And so it, the story goes like this. This is from Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it say next? The first thing that God does, and God blessed them. He made his face to shine upon them. And notice what it says next. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That is, be salt and light. God blessed them and he empowered them. Now, why do I point that out for you this morning? Why should we be glad for the work of Jesus overturning our lives? It's because of this. Jesus' work of overturning is always, ultimately, only a work of returning. God's kingdom is not to destroy. It is to surgically restore the universe. And your place in it is men. He is making you into the men by overturning your life. He is making you into the men that you were always created to be. So, for example, Jesus walks into the temple courts. And he goes and he overturns the tables of the money changers. And he overturns the seats of those who are selling pigeons. And then what does he say next? You have made my house a den of robbers, but I am returning it to a house of prayer. Do you see that? Jesus is restoring the temple to the place it was always meant to be. When the prodigal uh, son stumbles home, when he stumbles home in shame with nothing to offer, and he begs the father to only make him a servant, What does the father say to him? He says, my son has returned. Bring him the robe. Put my ring on him. Kill the fattened calf. My son who was dead is now alive again. What is he saying? You can only come home to me as a son. He restores the prodigal to who he was always meant to be. 
the disruptive work of Jesus in your life, the disruptive, challenging work of this sermon preached to you, the sermon on the kingdom of God, is, is a work of Jesus overturning in our hearts and lives the things that we used to be, the things that we used to do, but it's always a restorative work. He is making us into the men we were always meant to be. And that journey is marked by grace, and it is marked by suffering alike. The rest of the sermon will flesh out what it means to be salt and light. That's kind of the, the image that Jesus uses throughout the rest of the sermon. For now, it is enough for you to know the grace of God, the mercy of God, the blessing, the benediction of God rests upon you. That means that he loves you, and it also means that he intends you for you to lose your place in the world so that you might deeply impact it. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for our time this morning, time in your word. We pray, God, that, um, that you would impress upon us your love for us, O oh Lord, and we would pray a strange thing, that you would overturn in us the normal business of doing life, that you might return us to the men that we were made to be. God, would you do that by grace? Would you do that even, we pray, through loss? We trust all things to you. Your will be done. It's the name of your Son that we pray. All right.